All right, good morning. Um, good to see everyone. My name is David. I'm one of the pastors here on staff. It's always a joy to worship uh, with our church family. Uh, as we continue in our worship, uh, let's open up our Bibles to John chapter 3. And we'll read the first 15 verses. I'm going to be reading from the ESV, so you guys can uh, flip to your apps to that version. And last week, we started a new series through the Gospel of John, uh, entitled Encountering Jesus. And there are certain meetings that Jesus had with individuals that resulted in pretty amazing uh, transformation, transformations and changes. And by looking at these encounters, we want to learn more about who Jesus is uh, as a person, but also we want to study the impact that Jesus has on these individuals uh, and to look deeply at how they've changed and what caused that change. Uh, and our ultimate hope in this series is that we too will intimately encounter Jesus in a transformative way where we're not left the same. And I believe that that's what the gospel is able to do. That's the power of the gospel is to change our lives. Uh, and so let's give our full attention to the reading of God's word, starting at verse 1. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher uh, come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you, are, you, are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. This is God's word. Amen. You know, people in L.A. know the difference between a real fan and a bandwagon fan, right? A real fan is loyal to their team no matter what happens in that season. Uh, doesn't de uh, depend on the outcome. They are true, right? And so you hear terms like, you bleed purple and gold, right, for the Lakers. I, too, bleed, bleed purple and gold, but not because of the Lakers, but because of my Huskies, same colors. Um, but to be honest with you, and shamelessly, I admit that I am a bandwagon fan for the Lakers. Uh, the main reason being is because of LeBron. I am a big LeBron James fan, uh, but I'm a bandwagon fan. Uh, once LeBron leaves the Lakers, I probably will not be a Laker fan anymore. And so people in L.A. hate people like me because I'm a fake fan, right? someone who just loves LeBron. You know, Jesus had a lot of bandwagoners uh, in, his, in the start of his ministry. He had a large following. I know we didn't read this passage, but previous to this passage, John gives us a picture of Jesus' popularity. John 2, verse 23. Now, when he was in Jerusalem, 
at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Jesus was impressed with his following. He knew that their belief was shallow and superficial, right? It's easy to be impressed if someone can do miracles. What's fascinating about Jesus' ministry is that there were thousands of people that actually experienced Jesus. They witnessed the same miracles, sat under the same teaching, and the majority were unaffected, unchanged, and unmoved. Only a small fraction of individuals actually placed, placed their trust in him and devoted themselves to Jesus, becoming his disciples. Why such a difference? What was, what's the game changer? What's the difference maker between the thousands of people and the select few that actually became his disciples? How can we explain this? We find the answer in verse 3. Jesus answered him, being Nicodemus, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Seeing the kingdom of God is synonymous with being in the kingdom. Later in the conversation, Jesus says, you must be born again, right? It's not one of many prerequisites to become a Christian. It is the requirement to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, to belong to his kingdom and to experience salvation. You could only be saved through a new birth. Three questions regarding the new birth. First, why is it necessary? Second question is, how does it work? And lastly, what are the marks of the new birth? So why is it necessary? See, Nicodemus was one of those who were impressed with Jesus. He was one of those following Jesus around. And so he wants to investigate Jesus further. Verse 1, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him. All right, so Nicodemus belongs to the group that heavily opposed Jesus' ministry. The Pharisees were Jesus' main opponent. And we are told that he came to Jesus in the night, probably not wanting to be seen with Jesus, but also in the Gospel of John, darkness or night represents spiritual ignorance. And so Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night. And his opening statement, we see Nicodemus flexing a little bit, right, trying to show himself to Jesus. He starts off, Rabbi, right, respectful. We know that you are a teacher from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So we, we have to do a little bit of reading between the lines here. Um, he's understanding Jesus through his own lens, right, his own experience, his background, his education, his spirituality, from what he observes, Jesus is a blessed teacher from God. Right? It's a good observation because right? he can do amazing signs and wonders. But any, honest, like any good Jew would actually have made the same observation. You are a teacher from God because you could perform miracles. Right? Jesus' response is a bit dismissive and a little harsh, right? Verse 3, Jesus said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. 
So again, reading between the lines, Nicodemus thinks he knows something about Jesus. But a more severe presumption of Nicodemus is that he thinks he's already in God's kingdom. Because seeing God's kingdom as he thinks he sees Jesus is the same thing as being in God's kingdom. So the dangerous presumption that Nicodemus comes to Jesus with is, I'm already in God's kingdom. And what Jesus says here is, you don't know what you're talking about. You think you see, but actually you're blind. You think you're in, but actually you're on the outside. He doesn't get it. Nicodemus does not get it. And this was a harsh reality that Nicodemus had to realize. Uh, you know, there was a period of two years of my life in the past 10 years where I was not a pastor. Uh, after five years of serving as a college pastor in, um, in a church in Cerritos, uh, Jane and I decided to go up to Seattle uh, kind of blindly. Uh, we didn't have a job lined up, but my friend was planning a church, and so we decided to, to go. Uh, but we uh, had no promise of a job. So we made the decision. Uh, within a month, Jane found a job. This was before going to actually Seattle. She found a job because she's a teacher. Um, for me, it took me four months after moving to Seattle to find a job. And, and this was one of the most difficult four months of my life. Um, I knew that it would be hard, but I didn't think it would be that hard. Uh, so I was a stay-at-home dad for four months, and honestly, that was one of the most difficult seasons of life. But the problem was my resume, because I was trying to find a job in the marketplace. Uh, my resume, the past eight years of my life, was ministry experience. And I had to explain to techies, right, what a master's of divinity was. Right, just imagine that, 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 that master's degree, like explaining it to people that, that don't know the world of, of, of religion or Christianity. Um, my experience and degree, although useful in, in church, was actually useless in the marketplace. Um, all my experience, although it was, it helps when you're applying to churches, actually had no value or no weight in the marketplace. And so I was rejected again and again and again. I, was try, I wasn't trying to find fancy job, guys. I was just trying to be an office administrator at one point. But they were looking at my resume. This doesn't translate into the real world. It took me four months, and it was only by a friend who, who put in a good word, a very good word. He probably lied for me <laughs> so that I can get a job as a project coordinator at a tech company. I had no business being there. Can you imagine spending years of your life building up your credentials, your resume, your skills and abilities, and then realize that it's worth absolutely nothing? It's devastating. It's humiliating. That's the precise realization that Nicodemus comes to when Jesus says to him, truly, truly, you don't see. You're not in. Now, Nicodemus is a Pharisee. He's a ruler of the Jews. He is a, uh, a religious authority, political authority, a legal authority. He's highly educated, morally outstanding. He knew, he knew God's law and he obeyed it. If anyone qualified to be in God's kingdom, to have a place at Jesus' table, it should be Nicodemus. 
But then in his encounter with Jesus, he realized that his social pedigree, his religious education, his moral character and influence meant absolutely nothing. Nothing in God's kingdom. Put yourself in his shoes. So although in Jewish standard and qualifications, Nicodemus was a perfect candidate, according to God's perfect standard, he was a hopeless outsider. So Nicodemus right now is he's shell-shocked, right? And he starts to expose his ignorance, his lack of understanding. He takes the idea of a new birth literally, Verse 4, Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? How, does, how Nicodemus responds, respond, responds to Jesus' teaching about the new birth is the same way we approach salvation. He's automatic. Where he goes is, okay, what can I do? How can I go back in and then come back out? Typical, right? Typical person, like living in this culture and society, we're asked, what do I need to do? What can I do to, get, to experience this new birth? He doesn't understand. So Jesus helps him out. Verse 5, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not do not marvel that I said, said to you, you must be born again. So that the necessity of the new birth teaches us something about the human condition in its natural state. What Jesus is saying here is that we are all born defective. We are born with a severe spiritual disadvantage. Right? It's not that Nicodemus was actually unqualified. He was disqualified from God's kingdom. There's a difference. Because if you're unqualified, you can try to work your way to qualify. What Jesus is saying here is not you're unqualified. You are disqualified from entering into God's kingdom to experience salvation. He's unfit, un, uh, disqualified from God in his natural state. So the question is, what is wrong with Nicodemus and what is wrong with us? We are born with a natural disposition that is hostile towards God. We, 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 we see him as our enemy. We see him as a threat to our autonomy. We want nothing to do with God. We see him as an oppressor, a dictator, a killjoy. And the majority of the world sees God. The idea of God is a threat to my independence. The question then is, why do we feel this way about God? Why does a natural man natural woman, see God in this way? The simple answer is sin. Sin. This is how our first parents actually saw God. Even though God gave them everything in the garden, perfect paradise, with the prospect of being like God, they thought God was holding back. So the Satan comes and says, hey, eat this apple and you'll be God. You will no longer need God. And so Adam and Eve saw God as a killjoy. He's holding back his goods. He's not trustworthy. I'm going to take matters into my own hands. And the Bible teaches us that we are all children of Adam, sons and daughters of Adam. 
right? This sinful hostility and hatred towards God is transferred to all humankind. So from the moment our first parents disobeyed God and ate that fruit, all the world and their following generations will be born with a natural aversion towards God. And so we have passages like this, Romans 5, 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Ephesians 2, 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sin, sins. In other words, we come into the world spiritually dead. We are spiritually stillborn. There is no pulse. It's flatline. We are essentially born in a spiritual graveyard. That's the bad news. That's the truth. But what Nicodemus came to Jesus with, he's carrying with him his traditions. He's he's carrying with him his Abrahamic heritage, his education, his morality, his religious uh, obedience. And in his encounter with Jesus, he came to the difficult truth that all that he possessed did not and cannot transfer into God's kingdom. It can't get him in. Brothers and sisters, do you come to Jesus? Do you approach Christianity thinking that you have what it takes? That you have something that you can offer to God? That all your goods would actually transfer into God's account? Is that you today? See, the Christian life starts when we've come to an end of ourselves, where we realize that I don't have what it takes, actually. I'm hopeless. I'm hopeless to enter God's kingdom. That is the start to the Christian life. We need a completely new start, a new nature, a new disposition. We need a new birth. So how does it work? How does a new birth work? If it's not crawling back into the womb and to come out again, how? This is a true story. A couple weeks ago, Deacon, I don't know why he... he, requested it to Jane. Maybe it's because of all the, the pregos that we have at our church. But Deacon asked, Mommy, can I go back into your tummy? And, and so later I asked him, why, Deacon? Why do you want to go back into the womb? He's like, I don't want to go to school. <laughs> He's six. He's in kindergarten. There's no homework. I'm like, oh my gosh, we're, we're, this is going to be a really up, uphill battle for our son. But he wanted to go back in. So bizarre. My son is so weird. Um, (laughs) The new birth isn't something we do. The new birth is something done to us. See, Nicodemus thought he had to do something, failing to understand Jesus' whole point. The problem is you. You are the problem. How are you going to solve the problem? You can't solve it. So again, verse 6, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and which is born of the spirit is spirit. This new birth is a spiritual birth and is exclusively the work of the Holy Spirit. Jesus explains the Holy Spirit's activity, right? The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. What's the point here? 
we can't control the wind, right? We can't force the wind to do certain things. We can only detect it by its movement. Maybe we can even hear it. So it is with the Holy Spirit. So the Christian faith, we believe in one God and three persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Three, all three are God, but they are one. This is a mystery. But the Holy Spirit is God, which means the Holy Spirit is sovereign. We can't control. We can't conjure up the Holy Spirit. We can't force the Holy Spirit to do anything. And so the new birth is outside of our control. It is the sovereign work of the Holy Spirit. He makes us born again. And so we play no part in the new birth. We are completely passive recipients. Holy Spirit is the active agent. Just like we did nothing to come into this world, we have nothing to do with this new birth. So what this ultimately means is that salvation is not a result of human cooperation, but divine intervention. And this is difficult for many of us to hear. Human cooperation involves collaboration, pulling resources. You scratch my back, I'll scratch your back. Working together, partnership. Salvation is not a co-op, guys. It is the exclusive work of God where he pulls us from the grip of sin and death and he breathes in us new life. It is a unilateral, exclusive work of God. So our original hearts can't accept and accept God's love. We can't love God. Our hearts are dead towards him. So what the Spirit then does is, is mysterious. It's marvelous. It's unbelievable. It's amazing because the Spirit gives us a new heart. Despite us, he gives us a new heart. See, Nicodemus being a teacher of the word of God, he should have known this. Ezekiel 37, verse 1. Starting at verse 1, the hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones, and he led me among them. And behold, there were very many of the surface of the valley, on the surface of the valley. Behold, they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, you know. And he said to me, prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will, cause, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. He should have known this. Nicodemus should have known this, that only God can breathe in new life. Only God can give us a new heart. See, the new birth has nothing to do with you. Rather, it's something done to you. And as pragmatists, this doctrine sucks because it's outside of control and we actually play no part in it. We can't do anything. So it's mysterious and cloudy of how, how all this works, right? The, 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 the natural gut instinct is what? How does this actually work then? And again, we can't control the Holy Spirit, right? We can't conjure him, but we can detect him. And so we are left trying to figure out what are the marks then of the new birth? Because the mechanism is outside of our control. 
what are the marks? And this is, a close, uh, this is what we'll close with, this question. What are the marks of the new birth? See, for the most part, our minds can change about someone. Right? We all have assumptions and opinions about certain individuals. But through time and maybe FaceTime with those individuals and interactions, our, our minds can change about that person. Right? Even those that are friend-zoned. You guys know what a friend-zone is? Like you're never going to be seen as a prospect of, of marriage. Even if you're friend-zoned, right? something can change. Right? Maybe you, you have a makeover, the right environment, right activity, and someone can see that friend in a different light. That's what I hope for many of us in this church, <laughs> that you can move out of the friend zone and into a future mate. Right? To go from a friend to a lover, few steps. But to go from a teacher to a savior is an unreachable distance. Right? Think about this. I'll take it up another level. To go from a brother to savior. Right? Those that have brothers here, just think about it. To go from a brother to a savior, what would it take? The miracle of God. I have a brother. I will never call him my savior. Jesus had a brother who actually resisted him, who wanted to stop him from doing ministry. James. James, look at his letter. Look at how he addresses his own brother. He says, Lord and Savior. That to travel distance from brother to savior and even from teacher to savior is an eternal distance. It's an impossible distance. But that is exactly what happens with Nicodemus here. So what are the indications that you have experienced the new birth? What are the marks of the new birth? There are so many, but I just want to share three. First is humility. Humility. Why, why is this a marker of the new birth? See, a proud Christian is an oxymoron. An arrogant newborn is an oxymoron. It's absurd. A proud Christian is the concept, if, I, if I'm just honest with myself, it's absurd. A baby does not come out of a mother's womb and say to the mother, did you see what I did? I, I, I really just sucked in my gut right? And I just slithered out. Did you see my strength in coming out of you? Did you see how I came out? It's ridiculous, right? You guys giggle at it because it's absurd. It doesn't make sense for a baby to do that. No, baby, you were pushed out. Even the first breath, you couldn't breathe on your own. The nurse has to rub your back. They used to slap them. They don't do that anymore. But they start rubbing your back so that you could draw your first breath. An arrogant Christian, an arrogant newborn, it doesn't make any sense. Humility. Humility is a mark, deep, profound gratitude that you have been saved, that you've been given this new birth. See, the moment that we think that we played a part in it, that's when you see arrogance. That's when you see fair sake mentality. Look at me. Look at, look at who I am. Man, you got nothing to do with it. The second, you realize that Jesus is more than just a teacher, but your actual personal Savior. Verse 14 and 15 of our passage. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. 
Jesus makes a reference to the Israelites in the wilderness. On their way to the promised land, they start grumbling and complaining. Man, do we not, do we not have food in slavery? So they start complaining to God about God's rescue. God sends venomous snakes to destroy his people. And so on behalf of the people, Moses, uh, Moses cries out and says, God, please save them. God gives him instructions. Hey, put the snake on, on a rod, and whoever looks at the snake, looks up at the snake, they'll be saved. What is Jesus talking about here? He's directly referring to his future death on a cross, where he will hang from a cross for the sins of the world. Another sign, the, the, the point is, instead of looking at Jesus, you start looking up at Jesus. You're not seeing him as a teacher. You're actually seeing, as, seeing him as your savior. You realize that you are responsible for his death. You come to realize your sinful condition, that you fall short, that you cannot measure up to God's perfect standard. Then you start looking up to Jesus who's dying for your sins and you're asking him to save you. And this is not general sin. This is your personal sin that you're looking up to Jesus for. Jesus was without, he was without sin, but yet he died in our place. See, the only the Holy Spirit can make you realize your sins and to help you see Jesus as your Savior. Third, the third marker that you are born again, that you have experienced a new birth, is not only is Jesus your Savior, but he becomes your Lord. The reason why I love Nicodemus is because his transformation is slow. His conversion, we don't even know. According to chapter 3, what happened? It's, it's, under, it's kind of underwhelming, the story of Nicodemus, compared to the other encounters that we will see. It's unimpressive. He's not a flashy disciple like Peter, James, and John. Jesus' lordship over his, uh, over his life is subtle, but it's there. It's there. The only other two places that we see Nicodemus show up is in chapter 7 of John and chapter 19. In John 7, he stands up for Jesus when his associates were accusing of him. Very subtle. He stands up for him. But what's more interesting is actually in John 19. This stands out to me. Let's, let's see what he does. After these things, Joseph, Joseph of Arimathea who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with spices, as it is the burial custom of the Jews. He shows up again. The 12 aren't there. Where are the 12? Nowhere to be seen. They're scared to death. Nicodemus comes. His resume as a disciple is underwhelming compared to the other 12, other 11. But it's clear in these two gestures that Jesus was not only Nicodemus' savior, but that he was his Lord. For those that aren't Christians today, would you consider Jesus? You know, after you've been coming to church, I don't know, however many months, do you realize that you fall short, that you're actually broken, that you're a sinner 
hopeless? Is that the feeling that you have as you're hearing the gospel again and again? If you feel that, if you know that, can I just tell you and encourage you? That's a sign of a new birth. And, and, and over time, as you're coming and hearing the gospel, is Jesus actually becoming something marvelous? Someone marvelous and wonderful? Do you see the beauty of the cross for you? Is it becoming amazing? Like, do you experience grace and love through the gospel? Is that you? I'm telling you, that's the sign of a new birth. The Holy Spirit's working in you. All you need to do to become a Christian, to enter into God's kingdom, is to confess those two things. I'm a sinner. Jesus, you're my Savior. If you haven't taken that step officially, please do that today. There's nothing, the Holy Spirit's in you and working in you. And if you make that commitment, please talk to either one of our our pastors, Pastor Paul, Pastor Michael, myself, and we'll love to just love on you and pray with you. And if I can speak to the Christians here, I believe there are many Nicodemuses here. Your story of conversion is not radical. Even your faithfulness is not blatant, and we can't see it. I just want to say, God is thrilled. We want to celebrate you. Just because we can't see it on the stage or in different positions, but you're faithful, and Jesus is Lord of your life, we want to celebrate that type of discipleship as well. But the Christian calls us to make Jesus not only our Savior. That's, you guys, that's a lot of us in American Christianity, we just want the goods. And so we take our ticket to heaven and we just stuff it away in our pocket and nothing changes in our lives. We just abuse grace. That's not the full gospel. The full gospel is he is your Savior and Lord. We surrender it all to him under his rulership, his authority, our family, our careers, our money, our time, our relationships. We submit it to Jesus Christ. I know it's hard. And the fact of the matter is we can't do it on our own. Just as a new birth is impossible without the Holy Spirit, maturity and growth too is impossible without the Holy Spirit. See, the Christian faith is a marathon. It's a long journey. My hope is that we can give ourselves to the Holy Spirit's work. How? And this sounds very simple, but it's really by reading God's word through prayer and through fellowship. When we do these three things, we are opening ourselves, we're positioning ourselves for the Holy Spirit to really transform our lives. And I hope that we can do that every single day for his glory and for our joy. Let's pray. Well, if I can give you guys an opportunity to respond, I know that there are people here that have not made that step of faith. Um, You know that you are a sinner, that when you look at God's perfect standard and laws, you're just like, that's impossible. You coming to that realization is the Holy Spirit. And and when you look at Jesus, you see that he made the penalty, he paid the the penalty for us on that cross. If that's you today, can I just, just really encourage you to take that next step and to verbalize that to God. God, I'm a sinner, I'm hopeless, but I know that Jesus died for my hopelessness and I want to be yours.
that's you, please pray that prayer. And for the rest of us, have you been living this Christian life on your own? Have you been trying to fight sin on your own and to grow mature on your own? Or do you just not care? And you realize that you actually need help. It's okay to pray to the Holy Spirit. He is God. So pray to the Holy Spirit. If that's you today, pray to the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, I need more of you. I need you to transform my hardened heart, my calloused heart, my jaded heart so that I can fall deeply in love with Jesus again. If that's you, I want to invite you to that, to pray that prayer. So let me give you guys just a minute to pray and I'll close us. Savior and Lord. We thank you for your love.